You're listening to an episode of Law Review Squared, the Law Review Review. It is noon on Friday, August 20th, 2021. We're continuing our special series focusing on law schools. This week, we're joined by Dean Daniel Conway, head of Penn State Dickinson Law. I'm also joined today by our regular panelists, Seth and Shenley, who will ask to answer the question, what's one thing you know now that you wish you knew before starting law school? Let's start with Shenley. For me, I would say that... Um, it was a real, my first semester was difficult because I didn't quite realize that I didn't know how to study. And that sounds like probably insane, but um, I kind of didn't, uh, it was an adjustment for me to, when uh, other graduate programs that I was in, you know, you would kind of like read and be engaged in class and you would, you know, understand the material. And that certainly doesn't work in law school. Uh, in addition to reading, you, you know, <laughs> you really need to study. And what I thought was studying, I wasn't actually doing it. And I didn't realize that until it was um, almost the end of the semester and I panicked, but um, I was able to go to academic success and they gave me some tips. So um, I wish I would have kind of known that from the beginning because it would have prepared me um, much better for finals during my first semester. That's a great observation. And I'll point out that that's coming from somebody who already has an MBA. Um, so that <laughs> certainly knows how to study in the broad sense. Seth? Um, probably how large the legal system is. I mean, if you think about even just uh, you go to a court and you argue a case, you might be in front of three judges, but there might be 12 um on that court and then those 12 have you know five clerks and two uh two secretaries and things like that so that was that was interesting to see how that worked out and dean conway um you're not a second year law student but was there anything you wish you had known before you went to law school i wish i had known that there was room for reading more than just case books I wish I had known the value of uh, secondary sources and treatises and how they could supplement your learning and how you're not losing time by spending those moments with those mediums. Okay. And I'm Tony Fernando. And my answer, um, I, th I think it would be similar to, to Shanoi's, but she'd get a much better answer. I also have a, a master's degree and studying for law school is certainly different than studying for biology of master's. While supplies last, you can still get a free Law Review Squared sticker by sending your mailing address to lexclava at gmail.com. That's L-E-X-C-L-A-V-A at gmail.com. We'll ship anywhere, even if you're overseas. And a reminder that the opinions here are those of the panelists and do not represent the view of Penn State Dickinson Law, the panelists present former or future employers, or any other entity. Contents of this recording do not constitute legal advice. Now on to the episode. Dean Conway, you joined uh, Penn State Dickinson Law as the dean in 2019 after a successful military career and having been dean at the University of Maine. In the paper that we read, which was co-authored with uh, Becca Sabin and Krauss, who has been a guest on the show, and Rebecca uh, Schreiber, titled Building an Anti-Racist Law School, Inclusivity in Admissions and Retention of Diverse Students, Leadership Determines DEI, which stands for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion uh, Success. You discussed changes made to the admissions pipeline to increase diversity in the class that entered in 2020, which is us. Uh, did you have a mandate to make those changes, which we'll talk about in a minute when you came in? And was it difficult to build a consensus among the faculty and administration that those changes were necessary? Well, thanks, first of all, for inviting me on the show. And thank you also for doing this show. It takes a lot of 
uh, innovation and commitment, I know, to, to do a work like this. So thank you. And thank you for promoting Penn State Dickinson Law in this way. So you asked me about the mandate and essentially people's responses to that mandate. And I'll say this in a simple sentence. Equity is my mandate and it has always been my mandate in my practice of law and in teaching. And I'm really fortunate at Penn State University that the leaders here do an excellent job of articulating that deans like me are the executives who lead their units. Accordingly, I was entrusted with the discretion to operationalize my leadership based upon my vision priorities for the institution. And in that, the students, staff, faculty, and administrators, they were professionals. They were professionals in the recruitment of their leader, who is me, and in selecting me, knowing beforehand that my vision priorities were centered around equity and inclusion. So I would say that they instantly became colleagues in this work, that they were engaged with it and remain engaged with it and understand that it's part of my leadership platform. And I would say because our community of professionals are collaborators literally by design, they work alongside the platform, not necessarily alongside me. They work alongside the platform. And I say this because my leadership here is not one built on hierarchy. It really is built on an understanding that leadership goes in and out of departments. It goes in and out of people. Uh, you may need one person to be front and center on something in this area or in other areas. And so in that way, I look at leadership as asymmetrical. I look at it as fluid and dynamic. And when I've not been able to lead for certain reasons, people have stepped up into the breach and knowing the vision priorities, engaged as professionals to keep the vision priorities moving. And that's built on a lot of trust and a lot of loyalty and respect with the people in this community who are pushing this institution forward. So I, I think that we landed on this path together, this path of action to embed diversity, equity, and inclusion in all that we do. And I uh, do not lead by edict or mandate rather. Uh, it truly is one of consensus collaboration. I will say that uh, there is so much trust within our leadership team, and we're almost, uh, it's almost indescribable who's out front on any particular issue at one time. One of the interesting aspects of uh, the paper was that the information that uh, minoritized uh, law school applicants apply later in the admission cycle than white applicants. Although this is only one of the many factors that affect minority admissions into law school. Can you expand on how that one factor can be part of a collection of factors that end up resulting in systematic discrimination um, and, and, how, and how you all addressed it? Yeah, I think this is a really nuanced question and I think I'll only change it just a tad bit. I'd call this question one of systemic inequity as opposed to systemic discrimination. Um, and I, I, I'll sort of 
toward the end of it, you know, encapsulate why it changed it that way. But um, I have a really good example to demonstrate this. And, and I think it might resonate with current uh, law students, but with prospective students who may be listening to the podcast. So, you know, you might not know this, but I receive a ton of emails and requests from pr prospective students and their supporters to meet and learn about Dickinson Law, to meet and learn about me and the admissions process. And, and I think this is atypical, actually, for a leader of a law school. I, I know many of my colleagues probably do the same, but I just don't know to, to the degree to which they engage the admission, admissions process as I do. And, you know, there's there are reasons for that. One is we're really small by design law school. So I'm able to be engaged with the admissions process a whole lot more uh, intimately than they may be. But I think the other, especially on this question of equity, is because I am a black woman dean. Let's not lose sight of that. And so there is a different level of approachability that uh, it provides a prospective student, particularly a student who identifies as a student of color or LGBTQ or, uh, you know, any identity that creates an intersectional experience for them. So I'm really responsive to these requests, whether by email, Zoom or in person. And it's because there is this there is this sort of built in um, inequity that is part of the system and not necessarily part of anyone's actions or any design. It, it comes from uh, feeling like one may not be part of a system. It comes from one not feeling uh, like they belong to a certain segment of the community. And, you know, a lot of people are defining this as imposter syndrome. And so my, my goal is to be available to people to acknowledge how they're feeling, but also to give them some hints, tips, and suggestions on how to navigate the admissions process so that they don't count themselves out too soon, so that they don't come to the process too late, so that they have more perfect information. So I'll give you an example. One of these requests came from a college professor to speak with me on behalf of a young Black woman. This person submitted her application in the March timeframe of the cycle. Now, that March timeframe is just too late to uh, be considered holistically for scholarships, for admission. And as a result, because uh, she was applying and seeking admission at the tail end of the cycle, she was on the wait list. Now, a really, really good candidate, but in March, it's just late. And I did ask the question, I was like, you know, why? did this person wait so late in the cycle? You know, and, and one of the reasons that uh, she gave was that the student is uh, very close to her family. And so where she was living, she thought it probably would be best to stay there. But then when she saw our program and she saw how we were, were engaging on many platforms, including diversity, equity, inclusion, she said, you know, this place speaks to me. And so, you know, that's why the professor reached out to me and said, you know, how can we get her off the wait list? And I was like, you know, I would be more concerned if the student hadn't received a uh, admission at another law school. And so my advice to her was, if you want to come to Dickinson Law, take advantage, you can come as a transfer student. But 
you're not excluded from law school. You have an admission from a really well-regarded law school. Go to that law school. You're comfortable being closer to home. Be at home. And then don't think of this as a one-and-done experience. But I, I also asked, why did she wait till March? And another reason she gave was that she was, you know, this was a, a highly ranked law school and she wasn't sure that she would be competitive. And, you know, I fashion it, gosh, you know, forgive me for this, but I fashion it to playing the lottery. You can't win if you don't play. So get in there, get your application in. And, and yeah, if you don't get admitted, what's, what's this harm if you don't get admitted? And that, that's another thing that I talk with students about. It's, it's like, don't forecast your failure. And so those were sort of the three things that I talked with her about. And if she did take my advice, I believe this is just one avenue to reduce systemic inequity. Listen to the folks who are giving you advice so that you can be part of changing the system. It's not always an in individual acting nefariously or, or inequitably. Sometimes it's just our perception as well of the system. And we need to know how it works so that we can first navigate it. And then if it needs to be deconstructed, we can deconstruct it. Uh, one thing I noted as surprising uh, was when discussing how Dickinson has moved to a more holistic review of applications. Dean Conway, you noted that letters of recommendation can be important, but, quote, an ineffective letter of recommendation may be the result of a first-generation student's lack of proper guidance when selecting recommenders, end quote. Uh, this is an example of a silent factor I would personally miss if you told me tomorrow to select the class of 2025 without any additional guidance. So the question is, how do you determine when you've caught all or enough of those silent factors that later lead to systemic inequalities? So I'm going to answer this question in two parts. And the first part is going to be really short. And then the second part is going to be really extensive. So the first thing is, particularly with this question about recommenders, Many times students are not participating in their undergraduate experiences by connecting with professors or counselors. So it's really not a good idea to approach someone you have not spoken with or really engaged with intimately in your educational path because they don't know about you. They don't know your grit. They don't know your integrity. They don't know who you are. And so sometimes you see um, over and over again, and this is beyond just uh, the educational enterprise. I, I see this when people are, are applying for jobs. You know, if, if the recommender does not know the person, they can't speak to this person's growth over time. They can't speak to this person's integrity or honorability. They can't speak to crucible moments that the person has had the opportunity to hurdle. And so not identifying someone who knows you can really be harmful. So that's the first way I'll answer that question. But the second way I'll answer it and is more extensive is we on the admission side, we can't catch all of the factors. What we have control over, we have control over the processes that we put in place and how we review a candidate. 
We have control over asking a candidate to supply additional information or more narrative to give us a more holistic review of that person's file. So in in many ways, as we are working to diversify the legal profession or frankly, any other profession, we have to look at the long game. We have to know we're not going to catch every factor for every candidate is not going to be a perfect scenario, but we make it more perfect. You know, I align that with a more perfect union. We try to make it more perfect by saying we understand these systems. We know that there is inequity built into them. We know that some people can be excluded. So let's try to help this person in the time frame we have create a file that is competitive. We know that systems multiply on themselves so that when something is a certain way, it creates inequity in how the system is replicated. We know that we must be aware of bias, and so we acknowledge that in our admissions processes. So we question ourselves and how we review a file, not necessarily to catch every factor that we can, but to try to identify where the system might be creating an inequity. And we have a lot of tools to do this. Look, I am a black woman. I think I said that two times, right? So I have a lived experience. So if I am asked to read a file, I can look at it from that lens and say, hey, I was sitting in that position myself at one time. What was it that I was thinking about when I was writing my statement for my law law application, law school application? We need to listen to students and specifically to students of color, right? We Many in the legal profession and the legal academy have listened to students. And, and one of the things was a bar to entry created by the application filing fee. So many law schools don't ask any student now to submit a filing fee. I think that worked for everybody. Such a good example of responding to an inequity and that inequity responding to it all boats rose because now everybody essentially doesn't have to apply to law school with a a a application fee that's an excellent outcome we shouldn't have been doing that in the first place right so listening to our students listening to their needs we should be connecting with pre-law advisors and i do a lot of that work i um Every time somebody asks me to speak, look at me, I just drone on, right? But when when pre-law advisors ask me to speak, I don't even care how packed my schedule is. I'm there and I'm speaking with them about, for example, some of the questions you just asked me about. I talk about how we're um, trying to rectify underrepresentation in our law schools, not just racial underrepresentation, first generation, first grad school generation, LGBTQ. I'm trying to look at every underrepresented group. And why am I doing that? Not because it's just the cool thing to do now. Rather, we have a society of people that is completely diverse. I came from a law school that really represented the rural community. I stumped for the rural community. Why? Because they needed lawyers in those spaces. And so we have to make sure that we have legal cadre for 
all of these spaces. And one of the reasons is because, and I truly believe this, the rule of law belongs to all of us. So we've got to have all bases covered. Can we catch all these factors? No, but can we be vigilant and critical in identifying when we can those factors? Yes. And if we can identify them, guess what? Our responsibility is to respond to it. Uh, I like that answer. Uh, (laughs) um, uh, Moving on um, to scholarships. In the article, you noted that there was disparity where the Class that entered in 2017, uh, white applicants had received on average uh, $2,500 more in scholarship offers or financial aid offers than minority applicants. And by the class of 2020, the disparity had been reduced to around $500. And I noted that the average award for all applicants had increased as well. So was that disparity reduced because just on the non, non-racial, non-ethnic but holistic factors um, that were being considered in the admissions process. How important are scholarships in actually attracting diverse applicants? And was there new funding available that allowed for for this increase in scholarship dollars? Yeah, so two things were happening at the same time, particularly during fall 17 and fall 18. Actually, I should say three things. And I don't really want to get into one of them too much because it's past, right? The lore is over. But we can say, you know, that's when uh, the, the two law schools became separately accredited. And so the two law schools were trying to to um, uh, build their in, enrollments. So in fall 17 and 18, you know, this particular law school, Penn State Dickinson Law, was looking at its enrollment capacity. And so in 17 and 18, they were focused on enrolling students with a a credential that would allow them to be competitive. And so there wasn't a lot of emphasis put on, for example, our vision priority number two, diversity, equity, and inclusion. It was really geared to these credentials. And I understand that. And it was actually a legitimate decision at the time, frankly, because they were attempting to create a stable platform for enrollment. But another thing that was happening because that focus was on only credentials and what we talked about earlier, uh, white applicants uh, being more socialized to applying to law school. So their applications were coming in faster. And so we were setting up at the time, fall 17 and 18, and I say we in the royal sense, we, because I wasn't here, but we were uh, making acceptances to quickly build the class. And so the financial aid went out to them. And at the same time, that's when financial aid was decreased on average. So we had less money but we were giving out the money quickly to build the class. So is everybody on board with me there? So then we enter fall 18 and 19, where the classes are increasing. So when you compare the decrease from fall 17 to um, the marginal increase in 18, there is not a huge level in the increase in scholarship award. And we're using the same model of just trying to get that class enrolled. So 
white students were faring really well in that model. Now we enter 19 and 20 and here I come, right? And I was like, hey, equity is my mandate. <laughs> so here's what we have to do. We have to not just level out the awards. We have to increase diversity. So by increasing diversity, more students of color come into the pipeline. We can then adjust the scholarships to all students, not just to the first students who come in. We have a more measured way of thinking how to build the class. Sorry, I'm patting myself on the back there. And then what we do is we see that because of this kind of intervention, we're able to decrease the disparities in the scholarship awards. So it's really a function of three things that resulted in that and not an emphasis on one factor like ethnic background or racial background. It's really a function of this holistic review and getting the applications in the door earlier and um, saving uh, buckets of, of money sometimes for later applicants, not just applicants of color, but later applicants in general who decide, hey, Dickinson Law, I just heard about this. I want to go there. And, and so it's not essentially, right? You know how your parents say, don't spend all your money in one place. <laughs> That's essentially, it, it's funny what you can bring to leadership, right? What your mom told you about not spending your money in one, in one place, Worked out here at Dickinson Law. Could you uh, could you describe uh, the law school's connection with Clio and how that has influenced uh, diversity in the entering classes? Absolutely. So uh, prior to uh, taking on the deanship here, I did something at the University School of Maine, uh, University of Maine School of Law that people said could not be done, right? Which was to attract uh, diversity to essentially uh, a predominantly overwhelmingly white state and law school. And I, I stood up a program very similar to Clio uh, called the Discover Law Grant Program there. And even if those students of color who did not matriculate at Maine Law got into the legal profession, I was happy with that. And Clio is just that kind of program. So I uh, hired Associate Dean Jeff Dodge. He was the hire on my watch. And I said, look, I want to stand up a program like Clio here at Dickinson Law. Well, Associate Dean Dodge said, uh, hold the phone. I am in touch with Clio and they are looking for a host for summer 2020. So instead of us spending all of our time trying to create our own program, let's host it, get the, uh, get the background support information and experience before launching our own program. So I was like, okay, let's do it. So we put in a grant and Cleo selected us. And then all of a sudden, pandemic. Fortunately, Penn State Dickinson Law has a really good into um, information technology structure and professionals. So we were able to do that. So Clio is a program that is intended to open up a pathway or a gateway to the legal academy to underrepresented, underserved, and minoritized students. And when we were able to win the grant to host it, that created our relationship with Clio. 
And we did such a great job. Shout out to Seth McGeorge, Ian Osh, Ryan Cook, Linda Evans, and Tom Dennis in our IT department. Shout out to our students who were um, TAs. I don't know if y'all remember Jackie Stryker. She was a TA for the Clio program. And shout out to all of our Penn State Dickinson Law professors who supported the program, Professor Sarah Williams, Professor Muhammad Raleigh Badisi. We had some um, uh, adjunct professors supporting the program. We actually stood up this remote Clio program so well that Clio came back to us and said, oh, can you do next summer too? (laughs) And so we said, okay, we can do that. And not only did we do it, Penn State University got behind us and gave us an equity, what do they call it, educational equity grant to support it. So again, even though this is a program that is intended to increase diversity, equity, and inclusion, not just at our law school, these students can go to any law school they get admitted to. So they're going to any number of the 200 law schools, but they get to know about us at Penn State Dickinson Law. And guess what happens when those students who they got accepted to Yale, they got accepted to Harvard, they got accepted to all these places. Guess where they got their start? Penn State Dickinson Law. That's how you build reputation. That's how you build brand. And then look who was hired in the Clio program. Jackie Stryker, not a woman of color, not a uh, person of color. She identifies as queer. She identifies as white. She is the ITRATA for that. And she puts that on her resume. And she demonstrates capacity uh, that is that is broad and that is diverse. And that's always going to be with her. And she will benefit from that in the future. And so and then we get grant dollars for this. So, again, our institution, our boat rises because we're doing this work. In last week's episode, we talked a little bit about law school rankings. Does making changes to the admission process risk falling in the law school rankings? Um, And how much does that really matter in terms of attracting quality applicants? Um, I have a sense that far more people who are 100% qualified to attend law school apply each year than can be admitted, um, at least to the T100 grouping. Is this correct? It's not correct. I'm going to make your characterization more accurate. And, and the reason now I'm jumping around in my seat and the people who are listening can't see that is because I love math and I love numbers. And so let's get all into it. OK, so this characterization is not correct, especially for schools like Dickinson Law and another school that I came from, University of Maine School of Law and my prior university where I taught. Um, which was University of Hawaii at Manoa, William S. Richardson School of Law. What is baked into the rankings is size of the school, geography of the school, and the prior year's ranking of the school. And those things are often, unfortunately, immutable. Now, let me break it down. 
There are 12 factors encased within four segments of U.S. News and World Report, one of which is peer assessment. Peer assessment, meaning judges and lawyers who graduate I could ask you this, where you think the judges and lawyers are coming from. So there are judges and lawyers, as well as other law professors. And if I was in my office right now at school, I would hold up this, this book that these uh, T14 schools send out. Big old case books of here are our law professor candidates and you should hire them from Yale, from Stanford and so on, right? So anyway, these peer assessment scores are made up from people from those institutions, and that counts for 40% of the ranking. Wow, I know. Look, Seth went, what? Exactly. That's what, what? Let's all say it at the same time. One, two, three. What? what? <laughs> now, compare that to selectivity, which is what you were asking me about, Shenley, was uh, quality um, of our students, essentially, that counts for 25%. And then placement success, and I will say, folks coming out of Dickinson Law, we routinely hit the bell at 90% employed. That counts for 20%. And then faculty resources counts for 15%. So what does, what does this mean? Let's put it in perspective. Institutions that are in the top 50, especially those that are higher up in that top 50, benefit from ranking stagnation. And Christopher Ryan wrote a law review article. And if you're a sports fan, you got to read it. I'll give it to you. Anyway, that leads to a benefit we call ranking stagnation as a function of path dependent peer assessment scores. What this means is that peer assessment scores count for a larger proportion of the overall ranking. Now, because of perfect positive correlations between peer assessment scores and ranking, reputational reviewers are unlikely to change their opinion over time. So if five years ago they said Yale number one, now I'm screaming at you because I'm all excited. Let me let me calm down. But <laughs> five years ago, if a reviewer said Yale is number one, guess what? Today, what are they going to say? Yale is number one, right? So because it's unlikely to change, this ultimately implies that rankings are a self-fulfilling prophecy thus discounting and distorting any improvements and innovations that any law school, guess what, makes in the selectivity, makes in the placement, makes in the faculty resources. And then what you get, though, when you start going down to the bottom, when, when schools are jockeying for five more places under the top 50, depending on how they do in one year on one of those other segments, you'll see a school jumping up and down. Oh, we went up 10. Well, guess what's going to happen the next year? Guess they're going to go down five because that's not where the actual math is having an impact. The math is having an impact 
in the peer reputation scores. So ultimately, when I am trying to make your, your question a little more accurate, I'm going to say this. Equitable, equitable adjustments within our selectivity rubric, for example, that those credentials of the students coming in, those are actually aligned with Penn State Dickinson Law's ultimate goal of steady and sustainable increase in median LSAT. We are not trying to rock it up just to rock it back down. Rather, what we're trying to do is holistically look at each class and say, all right, this year, our median target is going to be 161. But UGPA has a way to actually offset a lower LSAT. So when we're looking, for example, for equitable adjustments within students of color, we might look for higher UGPAs to offset the LSAT score and vice versa, because newsflash, we have white students with higher LSAT scores, and guess what? Lower UGPAs. So this is not a one-way street. This is a holistic review, and we're doing this balancing all year. I mean, you should see Associate Dean Becca Saban Krause. I mean, she looks like a she looked like she in a circus balancing all the balls. These equitable adjustments are not mutually exclusive with meeting our median targets. That was probably more than you ever needed to know. <laughs> I'm just, you know, yeah. I, it's, well, Nobody talks about like how the rankings come about, right? right. I mean, they're just there. Mm-hmm. So. Mm-hmm. And, and if we don't talk about them in this way, and, and you, you see, did I say we shouldn't have a ranking? You didn't hear me say that, right? I'm not criticizing it. I'm not saying you know, all these bad things. Rather, what I'm saying is let's talk about these things realistically so we can break down again systems of inequity in our own conversations. What if all of our students at Dickinson Law hear this and they all listen to, I know they do, Tony, but what if they all listen to this and really think about it? Maybe we might actually get them to change some of their stereotype or perspective about who belongs and who doesn't. On that note, Even the faculty have made other changes, not just in admissions. There were actually two other papers, one by Dean Godion and one by Professor Groom um, in the same, which will be coming out in the same issue as your paper. Mm -hmm. Um, I know that we are starting to run a little bit short on time, but uh, could you briefly describe some of those other initiatives? Sure. And I'll try to be quick because, you know, I can talk. So um, let me list them first and then I'll go back to the one that that was really, really important and uh, really essential to my own well-being. So as you know, we had a unanimous faculty resolution to condemn racism and racial inequality and the harms that flow from them. We also had a second resolution that said, we're not just going to talk solidarity, we're going to teach solidarity. So we're teaching and learning, all of us, not just students, faculty too, staff too, about race, racism, and thick constructions of the 14th Amendment. What does the 14th Amendment contextually and historically mean. And trust me when I tell you, and I hope everybody's listening to this, when y'all get to the bar exam, y'all can be like, you know what? Thank you, Dean Conway, for this, because you could be able to answer every question with your eyes 
blindfolded. And we're doing this race and equal protection of the law required course. I also was involved in co-curating the ALS Law Dean's Anti-Racist Clearinghouse Project because after the murder of George Floyd, and then I'll circle back to the unanimous faculty resolutions, there were so many people, not just deans, but there were so many people who were just paralyzed after that murder. It's, it's one thing to hear about um, these crimes committed against segments of our community. It's another thing to see it. And I, I don't know if y'all remember when I came in, I was just flummoxed that day I came in to greet your class. And I was flummoxed because, you know, I was dealing with the reactions of my own son. And I was tormented by what he must have been thinking in his brain about that event of George Floyd being murdered the way he was murdered. Um, so when I go back to unanimous faculty resolution, you have to know that I was absolutely debilitated. I was paralyzed in my grief. I couldn't, I was sitting outside, there's my backyard out there. I was sitting outside and I could not move. And I had faculty members, uh, Associate Dean Godion, uh, Professor Groom, Professor Mogill, come to me to try to help me move from that paralysis to keep doing my job. And they, without me, came up with the faculty resolution because I said, I can't hold this in my head right now. They came up with it. And to see their resolve to, yes, do the morally and ethically right thing was amazing. But they started down that path because they cared about me and what I was experiencing. The love that they were showing to me and trying to help me get past that moment was groundbreaking. And so I was able, after three or four days of watching them work, I was able to say, you know what? Get off of your patootie and get to work because they're working. Get back in the fight. Get back in the game. You have people to lead. And out of that trauma came the ALS Law Dean's Anti-Racist Clearinghouse Project. I fueled the trauma into that project. And there we go again. You do a project like this. Who knew that was going to run like wildfire throughout the legal academy? And guess where the center of that was? It was Penn State Dickinson Law. So to think that 200 law schools were looking at Penn State Dickinson Law and saying, we have to be them. That's astounding for a school this small, for a school in central Pennsylvania, for a school with less than 70 to 80 entering students per year. And what that has led to is the law review articles that you referenced. We were on full display at a national symposium, our law school. And then 
I'm going to drop this one on you. We were approached by University of California Press not to do a book about this work, but approach Penn State Dickinson Law to do an eight-book series about this work and how we can change the legal academy and the legal profession along these lines. This little Penn State Dickinson Law. And that, again, here's the theme of this podcast, raising the boats for everyone at Penn State Dickinson Law. Because when our law school's reputation expands, everyone benefits. Well, thank you for that. And uh, with that, we're about out of time. Uh, Thanks again to our guests, Dean Conway, and our panel, Shenley and Seth. Reminder, you can find a link to the article discussed by going to lawreviewsquared.com. Com and looking at the episode notes. Let us know what topics you'd like us to consider by twittering suggestions to at Squared Law. Please like, follow, subscribe, or give us a rating wherever you found this podcast. If you're a law student and want to join a panel, please get in touch. Audio post-processing by Mohamed Salim. Series producer is Tony Fernando. Podcast adjourned.